Dr. Gail Saltz says a little bit of anxiety can be a good thing before a test or before a big game. It can lead to improved results, but we have to be careful not to let those levels increase and become anxiety disorders. I think we've all experienced a case of the what ifs. What if my kids get sick? What if my investments crash? What if my retirement savings aren't enough? A catastrophic event can be a catalyst to that as well. Something like, let's say, a once in a century pandemic. And there's always a kernel of truth to that. The world could end, but it won't but it could. So it's hard to convince yourself and your mind not to worry about things. hundred years ago, any sort of mental issue would have been treated with leeches or a drill to the head or a lobotomy. But today we understand that anxiety can be greatly alleviated with some awareness and some therapy. Through Dr. Saltz's work as a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, in the New York Psychiatric Institute, she's teaching us how to diminish stigma, make people more psychoeducated and aware of what anxiety is so we can treat it. She's been on Good Morning America, The View, Dateline 2020, CBS This Morning, The Oprah Winfrey Show. Just going through her books, you'll find, is a lot of fun because the titles of her books just in themselves are entertaining. And you're going to want to buy at least some of them. Plus, now she's been on the Retire Sooner podcast. I hope that our conversation today can help you identify any sort of anxiety that you might be having or needing to address and get a head start on living a happy retirement. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. So maybe we start with just your thoughts around anxiety in general, the difference between the natural part of it that's good and then when it spills over to being bad? Sure. Um, anxiety is a normal feeling. And in fact, evolutionarily, it's an important feeling because it is our brain's way of telling us there's a danger or there's something to be concerned about, which enables us to you know, in the simplest of terms, if we see a bear run away, um, as opposed to, you know, sitting down and having a meal or taking a nap or um, uh, having sex or, or, in other words, those are the systems that get shut down during the flight, fight, fright response that we have, which is experienced physiologically as anxiety and in the mind as anxiety. But that system for um, many people can be uh, very sensitive, overly sensitive, or get overly revved by events that are going on in our lives. And so you can also experience anxiety when there isn't something actually dangerous going on, but more the imagining of something dangerous that could go on perhaps in the future. And so, but your body keeps reacting and your mind keeps reacting as though the danger, as though the bear is there. 
And that's what can create essentially what I might call an anxiety disorder. So some anxiety is a good thing. We, you know, if you look at data, you find that uh, people who have a little bit of anxiety before a test perform better. Uh, Athletes who have some anxiety going into their event, there's a sweet spot. Some anxiety, they perform better. But as I said, there's a spot. So too much anxiety, too much test anxiety, too much performance anxiety, and you diminish function because you freeze and your ability to feed the, the parts of your essentially nervous system that need to be functioning at prime cannot because they are being shut off by the prerequisite of danger, danger, do something else. Um, that That's how I would in general explain it. And Anxiety disorders are amongst the most prevalent in society. They they are amongst the most common. They're different types of anxiety disorders. The most common often being um, generalized anxiety disorder, which I kind of call like the what ifs. Um, you know, what if this happens or that happens? And, you know, kids can develop generalized anxiety disorder or adults. And, um, and if you're somebody who is predisposed, which often means there's a family history, because it does run in families, um, or you have past experience with uh, a traumatic event, or you uh, have chronic high stress going on in your life, i.e. the pandemic for some people. That can lead to what kind of anxiety? Is that could also lead to generalized? Uh, any, any type of anxiety disorder, technically, but um, a lot of people have been experiencing generalized anxiety disorder. You know, what if I get COVID? What if I don't have enough money? What if my job place shuts down? What if, um, you know, it could be what if anything, because your mind can make up just about anything. And it's not to say that none of those things could or would happen. There's always a kernel of truth in anxiety disorders. And that's what makes them so hard for people to cope with, because no one can say to you, including your therapist, that cannot happen 100%. But the things that are very, very, very unlikely to happen feel to the person with anxiety disorder like they're they're happening or they're going to happen tomorrow, and um, and so it's the loss of perspective um, that encompasses you that creates uh, problems in the ability to function or enjoy life. Yeah, if we were to chart, and I don't expect to have the exact answer here, but if we were to chart anxiety in our population in America from a hundred years ago until today. <laughs> What would your sense be? Where would it have been 100 years ago? 5%, 2%, and where is it today? 10%, 20%? Yeah, I can't I can't give you percentages sure. because um, we don't have those. But what I could say is that obviously- They weren't tracking anxiety yeah, in the 1800s? Anxiety, no, they were not. In fact, you know, what, 100 years ago, uh, you know, it was believed that your humors were- black or bilious and you know you had too much black humor it was a problem for women they thought at some point you know your uterus was wandering around and that was the problem oh, it, you oh, know the basis when it comes to- of hysteria yeah i mean these were all there were all these theories posited as what what caused basically you know mental health problems but none of them were accurate um and so yeah we don't really know about anxiety disorders and in fact it's really only been in more recent years that we've improved two things our ability to diagnose 
particular disorders because we have a set of criteria. Um, but moreover, as we diminish stigma, which is we're still working on in this country, um, more people are psychoeducated and aware of what an anxiety disorder is. And that's just not that the sky is falling, but that maybe they're having an anxiety disorder and they think, oh, I will go see someone. So um, we're di- we diagnose many things that probably were going on a hundred years ago, but a hundred years ago, you know, you thought you had to be, you know, bled by leeches or. Oh yeah, um, they have anxiety. Just throw some <laughs> leeches on it. That's going to work. Right. You know, I recall an episode of Nurse Ratchet from, I, can't, I guess it- <laughs> One flew over the cuckoo's right. nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yes. Yes. Well, we used to do lobotomies, right? That was a horrendous and bleak time of doing terrible things in the days when- Um, You know, so little was understood about the brain and about mental health. And also people had a very low tolerance for um, the idea that mental health is health. And um, and instead, they thought you were possessed or, you know, crazy in some very pejorative way. But to your, I think also to your point, is there more stress today, culturally? Um, I think you could make an argument for yes, I, I think that particularly, and you know, when we talk about this time in the pandemic, while some of the numbers remain to be seen, right? Because you need some some hindsight to be able to say what numbers look like and in and, and doing research. But it's not just, although it certainly is, the fear of sickness and the fear of death and the many deaths that have occurred and the losses that have occurred for many people as a result of COVID. But there've been a confluence of many things going on the last couple of years in addition to the pandemic some real economic strain and stress, uh, a a renewed awareness of systemic racism, of classism, um, a divide in this country that has come with tremendous amount of vitriol and, um, you know, a, a lot of things going on that have created tremendous stress for many different groups. And, you know, when there is chronic, ongoing, high levels of stress, you are going to have more anxiety disorders. Yeah. Because it's a continuum, I would suspect that there is, you've got this, everyone's got their anxiety continuum. And you're just saying that the marginal person that may not have been pushed over into anxiety the last couple of years are clearly pushing more people into that. And then what about well, I want to ask you about technology, but I want to lighten the mood for just a second here because I was thinking about all the death and all the people. This is, it's been a, it has been a really challenging couple of years. You've written anywhere from kids' books to your, your latest book around the power of being different or the power of different, which I'd love to explore that. You've written articles with topics around sex. I usually ask people before we even get started, what's your favorite book? But since you have so many books, I would ask you, Gail, how, what is your favorite book of yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do feel especially happy about my last book, I will admit, because my, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, because I think that it is a new thought for many people. And because it reached audiences that I had not previously reached, like educators and parents um, to think differently about children who are presenting with a mental health diagnosis or a learning disability. You know, I think we've so often thought 
of children. Well, first of all, the lag time for parents between the presentation of symptoms and getting treatment for a child is between two to five years, which is a very long time Whoa. for a child to be struggling and suffering. And part of the reason for that is because it's so, not that parents don't love their children to pieces, of course they do, but it's so painful for a parent to uh, acknowledge even to themselves that their child may have a mental health diagnosis because of stigma, because of this idea that, you know, this means they can't be the, the a, a wonderful person who accomplishes things. And, and, and that is such a painful thought that many parents can't see even, you know, or keep not conscious what is happening with their child. And what I, what I really loved about doing this book turned out to be, it's not why I initially started to do this book, but it turned out to be that there are many parent groups and educator groups who realized, oh, wait, um, actually, it's not all a terrible, horrendous thing. These are treatable conditions. And there's also a, a potential for unique and specific strengths that I can look for in my child and help them to use toward their advantage to be highly successful. And I think it's made a lot of both educators and parents aware of the value of noting these things and understanding them, understanding how common they are, and therefore, you know, bringing their child to treatment earlier if if that is to be needed. Yeah, and I hope that our conversation today does that, right? I hope that it helps with that because that's a pretty shocking statistic, in my opinion, but I totally get it as a dad of four little kids. The two to five year uh, worth of diet, A, it takes a lot of time to ever get seen by anybody or find people. B, these things evolve, I would suspect. And the, you know, the thought of taking that much time, I guess to your point, the sooner we try to diagnose it, the better we can, the outcome can be. Or are we talking about you know, I know we've got famous writers and artists and musicians over the years that are borderline depressed. Are, are the, the disorders you're seeing with kids, are they are a lot of them around some sort of anxiety and or depression? Anxiety disorders are common in kids. Mood disorders are less common, but definitely do happen. Um, amongst the most common in kids actually is attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, probably might be the most common diagnosis that happens for children, you know, often picked up in a classroom. Um, you know, what it what is that? It is a difficulty, basically what I would call a a faulty switch in what's called the default network of the brain. And the default network is a collection of circuitry that where fantasy and daydream and idea generation happens. And you know, for most people, you can decide, I want to pay attention or attend to something, even if it's boring, I need to, because I've got, I've got a math test coming up and I, I have to attend to this, even though I don't like it and it's boring. Um, but if you have ADHD, your it's not that you can't pay attention. It's that your ability to regulate that switch that you decide when you're paying attention is is basically faulty. And so the thing that keeps you paying attention is only something that is so highly interesting, like unfortunately, say a video game. So the strength potential here is that you could hyper-focus, like attend better than somebody who doesn't have ADD mm -hmm. um, on something that really interests you. 
But the downside is that your ability to attend or focus on something, which is, you know, often something in the classroom or maybe even something relationally that, you know, like with friends or with family that you're just not feeling that souped up about at the moment, it's hard to attend to that. And it also comes with other symptoms like impulsivity um, and, uh, you know, often losing things, having trouble staying organized, executive function issues. And on the flip side, what the data really do show is that people with ADD, because they have that faulty switch and spend much more time than other people in their default network, like daydreaming and fantasizing, um, they have an exceptionally high rate of original and creative ideas, really innovative. And a lot of CEOs of new companies, um, are actually have ADD and they're open about it. Um, and they came up with ideas for their company just, you know, out of their mind. Mm -hmm. And they often are very high energy people, as I said, impulsive people who are risk, risk taking, which in adolescence is not such a good thing. Again, you'd want treatment, right? You don't want your risk taking teen driving a car or going to parties, but you do want your potentially risk taking entrepreneur to be the guy who's willing to like make the next move and the next move and um, and think out of the box while they're doing it. So there are these potential strengths that if parents can be aware of them and nurture them, can make a big difference. The same is true for anxiety. Um, what, what are the strengths of anxiety disorders? Um, often they're highly perfectionistic, pay super attention to details, very diligent. Um, often work very hard to perform well, are hypervigilant, even in terms of emotional states of other people. They often read the room, read the faces of the parents, of their friends, and see what's coming down the pike and can react to it in an, in an intelligent way. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of data to suggest that high intelligence actually has co-evolved with worry which isn't surprising, oh, wait a right? So you're saying as we have gotten smarter as a population, well, it's leading no, that, to more that, anxiety? That, the, that really that worry has linked closely to high intelligence. You Got know, it. Okay, along, so the, you know, in the, in, in the genetics that we pass on. And so mm. a, a lot of people who are high anxiety worriers are also high IQ people. Um, not surprising, right? Because, you know, who got munched by the bear? The person who <laughs> didn't think about it a lot and wasn't worried about it. So, I, I love um, the, the, the word munch. It's such a nice <laughs> way of saying you've gotten mauled by a bear and eaten. Yeah, well. Your flesh torn by a bear. You say, oh, you got munched by a bear. It makes yeah, it seem yeah. like a cookie. Well, we, <laughs> so try nice. to, we try to keep it light for kids, right? <laughs> but but uh, yeah, and, and so all of these things, but you, know, you brought up artists and musicians. There is a tremendously high preponderance of bipolar disorder, specifically in people in the arts, uh, visual arts. By the way, is that a mood disorder, Gail? It is. It is a mood mood disorder. Mm -hmm. It is a cycling mood disorder, meaning you have episodes of depression that alternate with episodes of either what's called hypomania or mania. The difference being in mania, which is more severe, you can have psychotic thinking, you know, break with reality. But in hypomania, you have this sort of grandiosity and very rapid ideas coming to you. It's called flight of ideas, leads to many ideas that actually do have a connection 
to each other and therefore are often highly creative, um, if you become too hypomanic, the problem is that your ability to function and produce those thoughts, right, act on them and actually produce them is impaired. So what's true for all of these things that I'm talking about is is a concept called the inverted U-shaped curve, which means that people who have mild to moderate disorder actually have higher creativity, originality, innovation, these strengths that I'm talking about, than someone who has no disorder. But someone who has more moderate to severe disorder falls back down on the other side of the curve and performs more poorly, has less of all these things than someone who doesn't have a disorder because they can't because severe psychiatric illness impairs your ability to organize any creative thought you might have and actually implement it. So the point is identifying disorders and getting treatment for them. And the earlier, as you noted before, the better because they are more treatable early. This has to do with neurocircuitry. And because you are less likely to have a reoccurrence when you treat early, the longer it goes on, the longer you have something that's called the kinetic effect, which basically says the brain is plastic, right? Our neurons um, strengthen as they're used. So initially, a neural pathway might be like I would call a country road, not very traveled, very small, kind of weak. But the more you travel that country road with your car, over time, it gets more and more defined till eventually it's a super highway and it's super easy to travel on that neural pathway. And that's why the more episodes of depression you have untreated, the more episodes you will have in the future. Hey y'all, it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the Retire Sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is going to pay you in retirement? If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. What has been the most effective way to help people? Uh, I would say, let's talk about a population like today There's having this high stress having just emerged fully, fully, fully from COVID and everything that's happening in the world. And then someone that is kind of more on the full continuum of generalized anxiety or depression, what helps pull them out of that or move the meter? Well, I mean, generally speaking, whether it's a result of a trauma, like if you had a trauma during the pandemic or not, um, treatment can pretty much be the same. Um, the point is really treatment consists of either a targeted psychotherapy for the issue that is going on. So not all psychotherapies help all problems. Um, and possibly if it's a more moderate or severe situation, the addition of medication. I am not a believer personally in medication without psychotherapy. Um, 
but uh, and studies show that the combination of the two is more effective than one, certainly for moderate to severe illness. But sometimes people who have more mild to moderate issues going on really can benefit from certain types of psychotherapy alone. So for example, for anxiety disorders, often a cognitive behavioral type of psychotherapy, which looks at cognitions, thoughts, and um, and helps you identify them and uh, sort of reorganize them, rewrite them. Um, and that in turn affects your behavior, um, which then cycles back and affects your cognitions. So that's a, st- that's a type of psychotherapy. Um, also helpful is psychodynamic psychotherapy, which looks at unconscious conflicts and fears and um, where they came from and re-understands them in the light of current day in a way that can relieve anxiety. Um, you know, it depends on what type of what type of disorder we're talking about, what kind of psychotherapy you might use, and uh, and similarly, what type of medication. And of course, there are, other treatments. Um, so again, depending on the disorder, um, and for people, and this is really important for what's been going on the last couple of years, people who've already struggled with the mental health disorder, a lot of them got worse during this time, you know, or relapsed. And maybe the medication they were on isn't working anymore. So there there are other treatments, um, things like transmagnetic stimulation for very particular, like for re- recurrent and refractory depression, um, uh, you know, t- there are studies that have were more recently looking at the positive results in ketamine use um, under the supervision of a specific type of therapist who uses ketamine, not just don't go home and take ketamine, um, but like <laughs> ketamine, very specifically. Ketamine is what the horse tranquilizer It can be used yeah. <laughs> that way, but in, in obviously much smaller doses, um, it's been used for the treatment of refractory depression in, in certain what is refractory depression? What is the refractory? It means it did not respond to psychotherapy or medication. It kept mm, refractory. Kept going. Okay. So there, there, there are there is a bigger population than you might imagine that you know, unfortunately, did not respond to either of those. And it's important that we keep building an arsenal of treatments for people who are still struggling um, with obsessive compulsive disorder with, you know, they're just a lot of, and that was a lot of people with OCD had a hard time during the pandemic, right? Because the whole first year was about like germs and contamination and getting sick. And, you know, so it was, it was a really hard time for a lot of patients with OCD, which got worse. Um, so it just, it depends on what the disorder is, but what I can say is that of course there are external things that people can be doing. I would advise anybody listening to have some coping tools for their mood and for their stress level. So that includes exercise. We know like 30 minutes of aerobic, like your heart rate actually up for 30 minutes. Exercise three to four times a week, lifts mood, um, decreases anxiety, uh, uh, pace deep breathing as a strategy to use once or twice a day for five minutes, progressive muscle relaxation to relieve anxiety and stress level, journaling some people find really helpful, writing down their feelings, their mood, how they're doing each day, having a support system of people around you that you can talk to about how you're really feeling, like not just how's the weather, um, is important and was important during this pandemic time, even if it was by Zoom. Now, when you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, there are many different kinds of that. Is that correct? 
Well, different there are kinds of psychotherapy. Yeah, there are offshoots of that. There are offshoots of that that are called slightly different things, um, but they all fall under that umbrella of a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And then how important is the relationship and, and are things mostly back to in person or are psychologists or, or psychiatrists also yeah. still doing very much Zoom oriented? Yeah, there's there still a lot of a teletherapy, a lot of teletherapy going on. Um, a lot of people still not returning to in person. Some people are. Um one small silver lining out of this pandemic is that we did find that teletherapy can be just as effective as in-person therapy, which is not something I think myself or most of my colleagues would have thought would necessarily be the case. I wouldn't um, have either. I wouldn't have either at all. No. But, wow. you know, especially like like kids being able to just sit in their room with a computer and, you know, not have to schlep to the therapist's office and see people in the waiting room and separate from their parent and just, you know, be in a comfortable place. People who really had really low mood and it's hard to get out of the house, like to be able to just, you know, sit in their living room and do it. Um, so yeah, it's actually turned out to be quite effective. Of course, it's important that you have a good relationship with your therapist. You know, if you really, if you don't trust your therapist um, and it, it's really not clicking for you, you know, I advise you to find another therapist. So yeah, it does, it does matter. And you know, not all therapists are created equal. Therapist is a completely non-regulated word. Uh, you don't have to have done anything or be licensed by anything to call yourself a therapist. Anybody, you can call yourself a therapist today if you'd like. Um, I'm a podcast therapist okay, interviewing so an actual therapist. That's fine and yeah. there's no problem with that. So you do want to know what the credentials of the person seeing you are. Obviously, no, you know, who can medicate you? Only a psychiatrist. Only um, a psychiatrist. Only okay, a right. psychiatrist. Who can um, do psychotherapy with you? A psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker. Um, social workers are often but not always tend to practice more in systems families uh you know uh, groups. relational groups yeah. um and and also psych all of those that i mentioned social work psychology psychiatry often practice in different therapeutic disciplines so for example i'm a psychiatrist i can prescribe i'm also a psychoanalyst so i can do psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and that, you know, and I, and actually, uh, because I also did a psychiatry residency and learned cognitive behavioral therapy, I do some of all of the above. So but wait, psychoanalysis people, is not a type of cognitive behavioral therapy? Not at all. Not oh, at what all. Is the, what are we, so the, what is that? Then? What is psychoanalysis? Psychoanalysis is a more in-depth, with more frequent visits, um, type of psychotherapy where the patient is not looking at the practitioner like you usually come in and you're you're looking away so that you can let your mind wander to wherever it might go and we use that material wherever that whatever you're fantasizing or thinking about to explore unconscious conflict in the mind that is driving behavior and mood that is maladaptive and so the point is to understand life patterns maybe even early life patterns uh but things that are unconscious and bring it into consciousness because once it's conscious, it doesn't have the same power to drive repeated patterns of behavior and, uh, and negative mood. Whoa. Okay. I, I did not know that. So it's totally different. 
than cognitive behavioral that's right. therapy. That's what so, we see so, on TV. So when you were saying, probably what you were saying is like, but aren't all talk therapies talk therapy? So the answer is there are tons of talk therapies. And I would tell you that actually psychoanalysis is sort of the father of talk therapies, right? Mm. That was Sigmund Freud and, and, you know, the earliest talk therapies. And what came down from that? Psychodynamic psychotherapy, which has a very similar approach to psychoanalysis, but probably with less frequency and not not facing the, the person. And then offshot from that, became these cognitive behavioral therapies, which are time limited, usually more time limited. So uh, everything's time limited, but you know, uh, CBT tends to be 10 sessions, 20 sessions. Psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is, is often more, more than that, it goes on longer than that. Um, and CBT is great for some things, but for other things, I would say, no, it's really a Band-Aid and it's not gonna get to the root of the problem. So mm. you do wanna see someone who is well-versed enough to be able to help you know what is the diagnosis you are struggling with? What is the preferred treatment for that diagnosis? And then are you seeing somebody who has actually had training in that type of psychotherapy, treating, you know, you you can find it. You go on whatever, Psychology Today, the American Psychiatric Association site, you look at members and they will list like what they historically treat. So if you're, you want to, you should, you know, if you have a child, you preferably see a child, an adolescent psychiatrist or psychologist, sure, you know, sure. that type of thing. You want somebody who's done, you know, who isn't inventing the wheel, who's been riding along for a, a while. You know, you've been doing this a long time. Obviously, the profession has come a long way since you know, Nurse Ratchet was drilling into people's heads, as I remember. I think that was the last episode of the Nurse Ratchet that I could watch because I couldn't <laughs> handle it anymore. I just remember this this stadium room. Do you did you see the show? By the way, Nurse Ratchet. I, I, I didn't. What you know that 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 stuff makes me upset. Cringe. And I'll tell you why it makes me upset. Um. Because I actually, I worked with, there's a, there's a place called the Norman Lear Center in, in Los Angeles. And amongst other things they do, they place doctors with TV producers so that for the sole purpose of consultation of, with the understanding that much of the population gets its medical knowledge from television drama, unfortunately. Whoa. And so, for example, I <laughs> consulted for a season of HBO's In Treatment. You did. Because, oh, by the way, it's one of my favorite shows of all time. You did yeah. an amazing job. That's an, yeah. yeah. You were I, one of the consultants for one season. For, for one, one season. season. Yep. That was and a damn good show. By the damn way, damn good show. And I think a lot of it was more accurate, which 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 is important. Um, but you know, when a show, you know, historically psychiatrists. I mean, we've been portrayed as serial killers. Uh, <laughs> You know, cross-dressing, having sex with our patient people, uh, you know, like like every every negative stereotype known to man. And that's not good because it actually does scare people and make them not want to see psychiatrists. Oh, so, that's why you so, don't love, okay. You know, I don't, sense, I don't yeah. love the shows that really are like, oh, oh, come on. And because it does actually seep in and, and make people reticent to you know want to partake which so that i don't like any show that actually you know is more realistic i do i do like how but, did you like the outcome 
of in treatment. And again, this is the HBO series back with Paul, Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, the, the dark haired guy, Paul. The, Gabriel was his Byrne. Name. Yeah. yeah, Paul yeah. Was, a, was his name. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how it even ended. I don't, I don't, do you I remember, don't remember. But, but um, did you like the outcome, though? Did you I, I, like how I, it portrayed? You know what? I can't even tell you because I don't remember how it ended. I was like, I was like doing like the second or third season. And uh, so it was still fairly early on. And, I, you know, mostly I, I like was really delighted that we could talk about what would what would probably really happen here. Yeah. Um, okay. Occasionally okay. something happened where I was like, no, that would not that would not happen here. <laughs> and they would go, yeah, but it's really important for the plot point. And I'd be like, OK, all right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, ama- that, that was amazing work there. For whatever you did, it helped because I remember that being one of the best shows out there. I mean, you know, my wife actually has a – she almost did this as a profession. She was a pediatric nurse for about a decade and then got her master's in – in Georgia, you could do something called a CNS, a clinical nurse – specialist in psychiatry. I don't know if it's Uh just Georgia, but Uh she did a CNS degree. Yes, there are nurse psychiatrists or, or, you know, they can't prescribe. um, I don't believe, but there are basically psychiatric nurses. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I've always had an interest in, in this topic in your profession. So we got a lot better from the, let's say the 50s until the last 20 years. Have you seen has what your ability or your profession's ability to be able to help people, has it gotten a lot better in the last 10 years? Where are we in the evolution of being able to help yeah. more people more effectively? Well, I would say that stigma is drifting downward, and that's a good thing because I think it does bring more people to a therapist. Okay. I don't think that we have made great strides in types of treatment or in the efficacy of treatment available in the last decade. Okay. We've tried to, we wanted to, um, but it is so far, I mean, not that they're, I mean, we have a collection of medications. They've, most of them have been around for at least 10 years. Um, and some of them, you know, do have good efficacy, but it would be better to have better efficacy. <laughs> and many of them have a lot of side effects um, because the way I'd like to explain it is it's sort of like shooting a fly with a cannonball. You know, we whatever we have like affects your whole brain, not just an area that we think, you know, may be at fault, so to speak, for, you know, not just that neurocircuitry. So we haven't been able to do that. Um, And the other problem we are suffering from over this last decade is we don't have enough, and I could like end it, the sentence there, but um, we don't have enough. We don't have enough money for research. We don't have enough money to train clinicians. We don't have enough clinicians coming out of practice. We we are a very... um, older, top-heavy group who will be retiring to the point of your podcast or, you know, dying. Um, and we don't, we have a dearth of people replacing them. No so kidding. that they're Yeah. So there's so a now, short Right supply. now, right now, more people want to go into psychiatry right now. So people leaving medical school right now, they're doing residencies. They're going to be coming up, but they're coming up. And the whole sort of, and a, a, there's a big, hole in the middle where a lot of people, well, there's so much stigma against patients and the field that 
a lot of people didn't go into psychiatry. It pays very poorly relative to other subspecialties. It's only in recent years that we supposedly got parity, insurance parity, but yeah. which is kind of a joke because really it's there is no parity. I mean, close, it, not yeah. even close. It's not even close. But let's just. Uh, but technically, we we've only recently even said we're getting parity. Um, and in the meanwhile, right, like you know, you can't make a living if you went to four years of medical school and three years of residency, and you have huge debts, and then you became a psychiatrist, and Medicaid was going to pay you ten bucks for a patient. You know, you Holy. you couldn't do it. So right? it's a total misalignment within the industry economically. Yes, and it created a. a a big, big, big gap. girth. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you're in the middle of the country and you need a child or adolescent psychiatrist, they could be hundreds happen. of miles without somebody around. Uh-huh. Now, teletherapy, the good thing is, right, you could reach someone now farther away. So that's good and that helps. But there's still a real, everyone I know has a wait list right now. Everyone I know has a wait list. So it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. And, uh, you know, we, and and many companies are trying to jump in and say, we're going to solve that problem by having peer counselors or coaches or the other names that basically means someone who's been trained for a couple weeks, oh, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. And, so- and it's not the same. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. I mean, I don't have a problem with anybody talking to anybody, but, you know, a person who has real mental health issues can be made worse by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. So I feel like I have we're concerns. part of the, you know, we're all in the waitlist economy. It's almost like we got so, everything was so on demand, so well-serviced 10 years ago yeah. in America. And I feel like today we've gone back to the 1950s, you know? Yeah. I mean, I started this podcast in the early part of the pandemic because I was getting so many questions from people, like just randomly emailing me, like, I can't reach a therapist. I don't, you know, what should I do about this? What can I do about that? And uh, I started this podcast literally just taking questions and answering them because there is such a dearth of of availability of, of people for people. Tell us just a little bit. So your podcast started what? You were, it was in 2020. Yeah. Like, well, like toward the end of 2020. Yep. Yep. And then, and you've done, how many episodes have you done approximately? Gosh, at this point, I've done about 60 episodes, I think. Um, so it's called How Can I Help? And it's literally just that. I mean, that <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to call it that because that that's really, you know, where I'm at. Like, I, I'm just getting so many questions and at least, you know, and a lot of them are similar because, you know, there are only so many things that go on in the mental health arena and, um, you know. Maybe I could be helpful. How can I help? Actually, I love that. I actually love that title. Well, let's go back to COVID. Again, I, I have a, one of my kids is on the ADHD. I've got some, uh, let's say, parental experience in this, and it's not easy at all. Um, yeah, and it was, it was particularly it, hard during the pandemic, particularly difficult for children. So, you know, like how, how do things go for children? It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not one story for children. Um, and children who had ADHD really had a hard time because attending to Zoom school all day was like impossible. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're very correct about that. Yeah, it was <laughs> really, right. really uh, a problem. And so, and the lack of stimulation 
of being behind a screen as opposed to being in school was really a problem in terms of staying engaged in any sort of way. So different groups had a different time, but actually some kids who were made very anxious by school uh, because socially it was difficult or academically it was difficult and they felt stressed all the time in school some of them did better during the pandemic not being in school but it's not a one size fits all yeah then they, had to re- then they had to re-enter they had to re-enter which is which was very hard but um you know everybody wants me or the expert to come on their show and say like it was all terrible right like we all did worse or you know whatever and there just is is, is, particularly in terms of kids in school there isn't a we all story there are definitely groups that did worse Mm -hmm. there are groups that did the same and there are groups who did better um and it's it's almost like a third a third a third you know if you if you had adhd or an anxiety disorder um, if you were hearing impaired, if you have a learning disability, if you there, there were definitely groups that really had a hard time, and sure. and ma- it definitely made it worse. Um, there are kids that fared fine. Kids are amazingly resilient and can do change better than adults. And then there are kids who did better because they weren't didn't feel tortured every day, um, and and they really were happier being at home, and they were less stressed. They were able to learn via Zoom, and they thrived. How about social media? Uh, what is the the evolution of social media in the last ten years? Facebook, which seemed to be permeate our lives, doesn't seem to permeate our lives as much today as it used to, but it's still a massive part of the culture. What, well, it's just because it's switched over to you know Instagram else, and yeah. and TikTok, TikTok for kids, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, what can I say? Um, I, I'm sure it's here to stay. I don't. I don't. I can't say. Um, and I and I think that completely removing your kid from everything socially that might be going on in their cohort does uh, is very difficult. It does put a real social stress on your child. Uh, that being said, you really got to limit it. Um, it's it's not a good thing, um, and you really got to talk about it because you know, unless a child is just told over and over again that what they're seeing isn't real i mean isn't is is curated is um is only what someone wants to show you is making up a story and that real relationships are more important should should be where the lion's share of your energy goes um are more fulfilling and um and and will matter more to your your mind and your health in the long run, um, they won't believe that. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, to your point, though, it has to be reinforced over and over and over and yes. over again because every single day they see something that does not add up to that, right? They Correct. see this this false Correct. story, curated yeah. story that is meant for them to see as opposed to, to entertain and to sell. Right, right. which really, you know, can be very damaging for self-esteem and um, – and you know it's often a vehicle for bullying or for making people feel excluded or for um, making people feel there's a hierarchy. I mean, it's it's uh, you know you kind of really have to stay on it as a parent, which is hard. It, it is hard. Well, look, can you tell me just a little bit as we wrap up today? When we're thinking about the retired student or audience that are that, let's say we're aging, getting into this next phase or the next phase, what about relationships? Talk to me about how what our relationships look like as we age. How do they evolve in retirement? 
Well, transitions are difficult, um, generally speaking. I, I could say that for, you know, whatever age you are, and transitions are difficult, so easier for some people than others, but often difficult. And a transition toward late life or end of life comes with it the awareness that that's what is going on. And we, unfortunately, are a very youth-centered culture, um, and we have not, we don't give a lot of props to, you know, wisdom and and aging and <laughs> things that some other cultures do. So it, it hasn't exactly made people feel like they really look forward to, you know, being uh, venerated in that way. Um, and, you know, so I, I would, yes, there, there actually has for a very long time been a peak divorce at empty nest. Um, and it, it's actually more often instigated by the woman. And it, it comes from, you know, you have to, you do have to make changes. And if you had children and you put a tremendous amount of focus, the two of you or one of you even, on the children and you were no longer really putting much emphasis or, or time or energy into cultivating your relationship, then, you know, a lot of people at Empty Nest suddenly look at each other and go like, who are you? And I don't even know if I like you anymore. And no. I, I don't really want to spend more time with you. Um, and things have sort of, too much water has gone under the bridge in that regard. So I advise people earlier on before that, like you really do have to spend time nurturing your primary relationship. And um, it doesn't mean that you're taking away from your children to do so. Uh, but it is important to keep communicating about what everybody, what both of your desires are, what your goals are, what your you know dreams are, when you're struggling, being willing to be vulnerable about what's going on in in different arenas, and uh, and being you know on your partner's side and supporting them and 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 helping them with whatever might be going on, uh, you know that's. If none of that has gone on, it's it's really hard to recoup. To fix it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're just saying the nurturing, it's very common at, you call it peak divorce at empty nest. But what's happened there is that that group has not nurtured their primary relationship and it's too late. So the kids are 22 now and they're out of the house. I don't know. In this world. Yeah. We're and they're right. just sort the of kids like are they're really now and they're out of the house. They're now yeah. in their thirties and they're out of yeah, the house. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> and they don't like each other. Um, or they're yeah. just, you know, they just have nothing kind of left. I mean, I'm not saying you can't try, make an effort to recoup. And I always recommend, you know, trying. I'm just saying it, it is very difficult. Um, it is very difficult. And so, you know, if it, don't let the kids be the only glue that binds you. That's what I would would say. All right. So at, just as a husband, how am I a better husband? You know, if we got four little kids running around, very difficult to feel like you can make time. You can always be doing something else with th this kid. I mean, we'll very right. often have overlapping this or that. We have to choose. Oh, is it cello or is it you know, <laughs> soccer? And it's, it's well, you can't, <laughs> right. can't take all the kids to separate games at the same time. So who's going to miss what? But as a busy dad yeah, and a, a husband that's not as good as I could be, what am I supposed to do, Gail? Tell me. How do I get better over the next six months to a year? Yeah, I think it's I think it's just super valuable to say, I'm going to have some time, you know, a couple times a week where I do sit down with my wife. It doesn't have to be like a three hour fancy dinner, but like, you know, 
whatever you are going to figure out to be that sometime that is not including the kids and saying, can we really talk about like, where are you? How are you feeling about things? What's bugging you? What, um, what do you like? What, wh- you know, how can we have some fun? Can we do something that's a little playful? Um, can I hold your hand? Can I, um, you know, nuzzle your neck? Can I tell you, wow, you look really, really beautiful today. I'm like, really can't wait to have sex tonight. Um, you know, you, you, you know, affection, talking about how it's not, it's like her being able to tell you and you listening, just listening, and then telling her back what you think you heard her say, like the, the mirroring talk. And that hopefully she is doing the same for you. Like, oh, I, I know, like you really had a crummy day with that podcast guest was a jerk. And, you know, that must have like, how did you feel about that? And what, you know, do, what do you think you want to do about that next time? Or whatever it is that you feel listened to, you know, each other and invested in what each other have to say. And that it doesn't just become like, okay, once a week, let's have the sex. It's, you know, there has to be some like, I want to hold your hand. I want to like smell you. I want to, you know, like I'm, I'm, I, I have this, this romantic feeling about you. And uh, that's why you're my life partner. And um, I, you know, I show it. So it's, it's not about like buying things or, I mean, it is important, I think, to have some play. It is important to have some play. Yeah. Say that again. What do you mean by that? It's important to have some play. Like, you know, what we're, whatever, we're getting a babysitter for a couple of hours and, you know, we've wanted to try canoeing and we're, we're, we're going to go out and canoe yeah, okay. together okay, let's go to or, a you know, together. Yeah, let's something do... that's playful. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's fun. Um, that, you know, play and new experience increases dopamine, which is the mm-hmm. neurotransmitter of reward. And it keeps you like a little, you know, aroused and like addicted to your partner. I had never heard that before, but you're right. So new experience mm-hmm. creates dopamine. I've never heard that before. Something Newness. Like anything, just newness of anything. Doesn't really matter newness. what it is. Yep. Right? Yep. No kidding. Huh. I'm gonna write that. I'm little I'm writing this down because that <laughs> Yeah, I do love that idea of just something anything, anything new. Yeah. Anything new. And like could be a surprise. Like I you know, I have no idea. Oh, I bought these I bought these fun mixers today and I thought we'd like, and these umbrellas and we're going to make these fun cocktails together and like stick umbrellas in them and, you know, put a towel on the floor and watch the show together. I don't, you know, could be anything new, anything new and fun. Okay. Well, you can tell Lynn that (laughs) we have to do new stuff and it has to be fun. (laughs) It's just, it is tough with, with a lot of kids. Yes, it is tough with a lot of kids. And I think that it's a reminder from you to me. To just be more intentional about it. I mean, it's, it, yeah. you know, uh, nurturing the primary relationship yeah. is something that is- And it's good for your kids. It's, yeah. you know, it makes your family tighter and it and it, it gives them a model of what you hope they will have one day, right? You don't really want them to grow up and marry somebody who is, you know, a ship passing in the night and yeah. not, right? You want them to have- that good relationship. So you're you're their first model and you're probably yeah. their most important model. Well, it's cool though to think about it because it's fun to think about too, right? right? I mean, I think we could probably, most of us, 
and most of our audience listening, maybe it's just me projecting, is that we could spend more time. And I would, I look forward to being able to do that. It doesn't seem like a task or a chore. I look, I would look forward to doing more of that. It just feels like I have to be maybe more intentional about doing that. And I think and the, a lot the other of people thing would I would say, say, particularly for your group who's interested in retirement and what goes on then, is that. Your partner at the end of the day can't really make you happy, right? You have to make you happy. And then you can experience happiness with your partner. Um, But so a lot of people feel that their partner should make them happy. And, um, and they may go through a period of unhappiness, which doesn't is really has nothing to do with the partner, um, but they're kind of blaming their partner. And I see in retirement, a lot of sort of that problem. Um, and, uh, if, you know, you don't have to be with your partner 24 seven in retirement. In fact, often that is really the kiss of death. Like if you're all up in each other's grill all the time, you know, he, like, you know, you loaded the dishwasher and he comes by and says, no, the plates aren't straight. They're not going to get clean that way. Let me reload it for you. You're like, you know, she wants to strangle him. Like, it's very annoying. So (laughs) it's okay to have other things that you like to do that aren't necessarily even with your partner um, or that you have, the division of labor has something to do with like doing different things, you know, in the domain, like that you feel responsible for and take care of. Um, But it it isn't always the best to be completely on top of each other all the time. Um, Sometimes people regret retirement for that reason, actually. And you, you, you don't have to do it that way. Well, it's a very interesting thought is that you may be unhappy with yourself relative to your part. You think it's the partner and you project to the partner. And yes. we also talk about core pursuits here or hobbies on steroids. And it, yep. and it is really important for each person to have three to four different core pursuits. And it shouldn't all be the same. They really should have right. some divergence. Right. I would agree and, with that. And you've seen that. So uh, definitely. Well, uh, so your latest, as we wrap here today, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, that's your latest book and your favorite book? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. What's your second favorite book of, of yours, Gail? Probably. Dr. Saltz. Thank you. You can call me Gail. Um, well, the funny thing is, I would probably say my first book, Becoming Real, um, because it really explained psychoanalytic theory for the layperson, like it really tried to walk you through, like therapeutically, how you can talk to yourself, and um, and so I really I do like that book a lot. Oh, becoming real, defeating the stories yeah. we tell ourselves to hold, our, hold, to us hold us back. Yes, so I really like that. Interestingly, the book that has that just sells gangbusters came out of a crazy, you know, on the Today Show. I was doing a talk to your kids about the birds and the bees discussion and a publisher called me and said can you please do we we, like a book off of your off of your series here and and I did and I sort of thought oh okay that's you know sure this is these are hard talks to have but I had no idea that it would be it's like I don't know 15 years later and it's still like number three on Amazon for kids birds and bees talk and like it's a very popular it's a very I have I have greatly embarrassed my daughters forevermore because so many of their friends learned about the birds and the bees from this from this book that their mother wrote. Um, so oh, that's the sp- one that's amazing. You getting smart um, about yep. your private parts. Yeah, oh, I love yep. it. I don't have that in my house. We oh, need oh, to. oh, it's a it's a it's very popular. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I get to embarrass my kids for the rest of their lives, which is, you know, always a joy. 
how about let's see how about how let's see which one is this is the the ripple effect how better sex can lead to better life yeah that's 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 a that's that's great um i you know that's about just that you know people i mean i did a fellowship in in sex therapy and um, treating sexual dysfunction. And it's really, you know, a walk through the different types of sexual dysfunction people struggle with and how they can, you know, work on that either individually or with their partner um, to better their sex lives. And um, yeah, and then I think, and I also wrote um, Anatomy of a Secret Life, which is, um, well, the subtitle, The Psychology of Living a Lie, about people who have led double lives and where that comes from and people I've treated and uh, and I always think the double life thing is like once in a while that'll be in a Netflix movie or the the billions like oh there's a they have a totally another life across yeah. the bridge in a separate yeah. minivan on the weekends and that ha- I mean that's not just something in the movies once no. in a, one in a million no I mean it's not common but it is it does happen in many different arenas living Absolutely. a double life living a double life cool I think we leave it on that cliffhanger all right I like that awesome <laughs> yeah you're very generous with your time uh, we spent you. an hour together thank you so much thank you for having uh, me. Uh, continued success with all of your books. I'm going to be picking Appreciate up a couple it. new ones from from you. <laughs> Definitely the uh, one for my kids. On, all right. Uh, the uh, I have many it, friends who've been like, ah, Gail, now I have to read this. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, keep going with how can I help too? I think it, you're probably you. helping an awful lot of people. So Thank you. And if God anyone has a question, they can feel free to write me in a question at uh, how can I help at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, awesome. Thank you, Gail. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.